So let's, uh, can we all stand together and let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And let me begin with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran, ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His, his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when, they, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Our most gracious but holy God, we thank you for this great morning, for this wonderful morning. For this blessed morning, O oh God, that you have gathered us once again. Father, this morning, Lord, this is your day. And we just want to worship you. We just want to lift up your name, O oh God, because you alone is worthy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can meditate or study your word together as your people. And we pray, Lord, that this morning you will guide us, you will open our hearts, our minds, our spiritual eyes, so that we will behold Jesus all the more and give him the glory. We want Jesus to increase in our lives while we decrease, O oh Lord. And Father, I pray that for myself, that even as I share your word, grant me, help me, Lord, to share your word with clarity, with passion. And I pray, Lord, that this morning we will be edified, we will be enriched, and we will be inspired, be encouraged to live for your glory. And we just want to commit this time to you, O oh God, as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be seated. Who among you knows St. Nicholas? Or Bishop Nicholas. Do you know Saint Nicholas? Have you heard about this person before? Saint Nicholas is best known as Santa Claus. 
Uh, the legend about Santa Claus was based on this person named Saint Nicholas. Now, how did Saint Nicholas turn into the North Pole dwelling bringer of Christmas gifts? Now, the original saint was Greek born in the late third century, around 280 BC, and he became Bishop of Myra, a small Roman town in modern Turkey. Nicholas was neither fat nor jolly, but developed a reputation as a fiery, wiry, and defiant defender of church doctrine during the Great Persecution in 303, when Bibles were burned and priests made to renounce Christianity or face execution. Now, Nicholas defied these edicts and spent years in prison before the Roman Emperor Constantine ended Christian persecution on 313 with the Edict of Milan. So Nicholas' fame lived long after his death. On December 6th in the, in the mid-4th century, around 343, and he became famous because he was associated with many miracles and reverence for him continues to this day independent of his Christmas connection. He is the protector of many types of people from orphans to sailors to prisoners. And over the course of, the, of his entire life, he was known for being extremely generous to the children, regularly giving them gifts. And so this is how he became a legend. And one interesting fact about him, uh, by the way, his legend moved northward. And the story takes an even more interesting turn. In Germany, the tradition arose of giving gifts to each other in the name of Saint Nicholas. And so too in Netherlands. The Dutch word for him became Sinterklaas. And the German word eventually became Santa Claus. And so this is the real Santa Claus. This is Bishop Nicholas. And one interesting fact about St. Nicholas, the real Santa Claus, is that he stood against Arius. Arius was a presbyter from Alexandria, and he stood against Arius because he denied, Arius denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. At one point, while Arius was addressing the council, when St. Nicholas' rage got the better of him, and according to some of his biographies, or some of the biographers, his, Nicholas stood up, crossed the floor to Arius, and promptly punched him in the face. And for the assault, Nicholas found himself in the jail. And, but Nicholas was repentant and sought forgiveness. And, and after the council, um, Emperor Constantine granted clemency and restored Bishop Nicholas to his post. And so the real Santa Claus was not just known for giving gifts to children, but he was really known as a defender of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And up until today, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is being debated, being challenged, doubted, questioned by many people today. When it comes to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's not, there's not much debate about it. But when it comes to His deity, 
History tells us that it has always been the subject of debate. And so, there's not, so this, is the, this is the truth, this is the reality when it comes to the deity of our Lord. In fact, there's this popular, large, and influential religious group in our country today that teaches Jesus is not God. So there are many people here in our country who do not believe that Jesus is God, but just mere man. And the topic regarding Jesus' deity is really important. If the early church defended it, then we are to defend it also today. And if we believe Jesus is just mere man and not God, then how can we trust him for our salvation? It will not convince our soul to embrace him as our Lord and personal Savior if Jesus is not God. And our eternity hinges on what we believe about him. While it is true that more than 2,000 years ago, Jesus became man, he was born here on earth, but the Jesus we believe, we follow, we worship, and we celebrate today is not just man, but God. Jesus is both God and man. And the letter of Apostle John that we read, we find here one of the evidences or proof why Jesus is not just human, but God. Now, what is the purpose of, or the intention of John, the apostle, John the Beloved, who wrote this letter? What was his intention of writing this gospel? Now, we find that uh, John has written his gospel for one purpose, and we find this in John chapter 20, verse 31, where it says, but this have been written, whatever has been written here in the gospel, this has have been written so that you have, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, John's intent, his purpose is to incite faith within those who have read and understand this scripture, understand this letter. But in John chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, we see here that the glory of Jesus is veiled. His glory is veiled. It tells us here, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. When God became man in the person of Jesus as God incarnate, people did not recognize Him. People did not know the Son of God. And as what the author and the apostle tells us that the world did not recognize him, nor was he received by his own people. And so for 30 years, Jesus lived a life of obscurity. He was not popular. For one, he did not come here primarily to be popular. I mean, he lived among the people, he walked with them, he ate with them. But he was not recognized yet as the son of God. For the people, he was just the son of man. He was just the son of Joseph. He was just a carpenter from Nazareth. 
And so John the Beloved wrote this letter to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. And this letter is both, the letter of John is both apologetic and evangelistic. Why is it apologetic? It's apologetic because it gives evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God through the different miracles that He performed. And why is it evangelistic? Because by showing the miracles, you might believe Jesus as the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life, eternal life, in His name. And so John's gospel is a collection or a documentation of the evidences concerning the Lord to prove His deity and also His humanity. And so the whole purpose of this gospel is just to line up supporting proofs for the deity of the Lord. And in the opening chapter, we find several testimonies here. In chapter 1, we find here the inspired testimony of Apostle John concerning the fact that Jesus is the Creator God Himself. In John chapter 1, 1 to, 3, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that have been made. And we also find here the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last and greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He was also the first preacher of Jesus Christ. And he affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And this is what it tells us in verses 19 to 23. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. And what do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight in the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And continuing in verses 29 to 34, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, and I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And we also have the testimony of Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, 45 to 51, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Of course, we also find here the testimony of our Lord Himself as what we read here. So the first chapter is the verbal testimony of John the Apostle, the verbal testimony of John the Baptist, and the followers of John the Baptist who then followed Jesus and who later on became His apostles. Now we come now to chapter 2. We move from verbal testimony to testimony by works of Jesus Christ. Now it's one thing to believe what is being said, but it is another thing to actually see the proof of what is being said about Jesus Christ, right? By the way, in this gospel, there are seven miracles recorded that Jesus did that are signs pointing to his deity. And let me just show this to you. First, he turns water into wine in chapter 2. Then he heals a dying man in chapter 4. He cures a paralyzed man in chapter 5. He multiplied food for thousands of people in chapter 6. He walks on water at the end of chapter 6. He gives sight to the blind in chapter 9. And also, he raises a man dead for days in chapter 11, who was Lazarus. Now, although there were seven recorded miracles in this gospel, but there are also many other miracles that Jesus performed in the presence of, of the people that were not recorded in this gospel, as what we are told in John chapter 20, verse 30. So, beginning of John 2, we now see here the glory of Jesus unveiled. The glory of Jesus unveiled. Now, I made four outlines out of this chapter. Party, problem, provision, purpose. Party, problem, provision, purpose. So let me begin with the party. We all love parties, right? right? We all love parties. So what is the setting of the first miracle? What is the setting of the first miracle? A wedding. A wedding in Cana. Now, why wedding is the setting of, this, of Jesus' first miracle? I mean, why? Why is it that the first recorded miracle happened in a wedding? And why God chose a wedding event to display Jesus' glory? And we cannot know certainly why. I mean, it's not, it's not told in the text why God chose wedding as the setting of the first miracle. However, we find clues. The people present in this wedding were the mother of Jesus, his brothers, or his family, and his disciples. And it was not accident. I believe it's not an accident why these people were here. And remember, 
remember this, that there's now a transition from Jesus' life of obscurity and towards the start of His public ministry. It was the time or it was time for Jesus to reveal Himself as the Son of God. And to debut His public ministry, the first witnesses were His very own family and His disciples, the inner core. Now, it's not a random choice why, again, why I believe His family and disciples are the first ones to witness His first miracle. After all, they have been with Jesus all this time. And his family knew Jesus so well, at least in his humanity. And, and what they think about Jesus Christ will dramatically change. They will have a, they will have a, a shift of perspective here. And seeing Jesus, not just the son of man, not just the son of Joseph and Mary, but the son of God. It was time for Jesus to demonstrate who he really is before his family and disciples. So 30 years of absolute obscurity in private life, and now he's going to begin his public ministry. And the bridge from his private life to his public ministry is a miracle for his family and his disciples. And I'd like to give a reflection here. When you and I, or when, when we got converted and became a Christian, the first one to notice our conversion, our change, should be our family, right? Our family. Unless you live far from home, unless you live from the province and you went to the city, and then there in the city you encountered, lo and behold, you encountered the Lord, and then there you became born again. But as you go back to your hometown, as you go back to your place, of course, your family should be able to see a different you. And that you are now a changed person. The family should be the first to, to, to see, to witness of our change because they are the very people who know us very well. Now, let me ask you this question. Does your family see the change in you? Can they notice a different you? Because here in the church, we can easily act out, we can easily play out Christianity. By just raising our hands and singing along with the songs, we can pretend that we are Christians. But before our family... We cannot hide the truth. Our family can smell. They can, they can see if our profession of faith is genuine or not, right? They will see. They know the truth about ourselves. And, and that's why family should be the first witness of our conversion. And, and this is what Jesus proved here before his family and his disciples that he is the son of God. They were the closest to Jesus. And later on, we will see that they were also the first people who believed in him. And Jesus and his disciples got invited in this party. And at the time, it's the party that exceeds all other parties. Why? Because wedding is the most important event in the ancient world. And I want us to see the importance of this event. 
Cana is just a small village. And so weddings like this would be so huge at the time. And the fact that our Lord attended and did His first miracle at a wedding emphasizes the sanctity of marriage covenant. And Jesus honors marriage, which is in line with His will, with God's will. And wedding parties during that time would take many days to one week, usually one week. And unlike today, the celebration is just one day, right? I mean, like the, the ceremony, and then right, right now, let's just say there's a ceremony, then right after the reception. And so in just one day, I mean, the, 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 the wedding is consummated. But at the time, it will take too many days to one week. And marriage in Jesus' day begins with a betrothal or a formal engagement up to one year before the wedding celebration. The man and woman enter a binding legal agreement to marry, but the couple does not live together until one year is up, though they are already considered as husband and wife. And that bond cannot be broken except for divorce, or it can only be broken by divorce. And then that marriage will be consummated at the end of the wedding party. So in their culture, it was different. When, when the husband and rather when the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the husband and wife enter into this um, agreement, they will wait for one year, and they cannot live together, but they're already considered as husband and wife, and that it will be consummated at the wedding party. So wedding party is like the closing program of the one year. So the question is, what was going on all that year? If, it, if they had to wait for one year, what was going on all that year since they were not allowed to live together? Well, the husband was preparing a place for his bride. The expectation is that the groom has built a house for them. Then listen to this. The bridegroom had the full responsibility for all the cost of the wedding. So his job in one year was to get everything ready. And when everything was ready and all preparations were made, and he had demonstrated that he had what it took to care for this girl and to, and to provide for this and to also to provide for the, for the wedding party, then the party began. And it was a great celebration because, it had been, because he had been working hard for one year. The bride had been waiting for this, and finally the time comes. And so it is an immense celebration. In one year's time, the husband is preparing to prove that he, with the help of his family, is able to provide for his wife, for his bride, and able to provide for the celebration, that he is able to take care of his bride. But in the story, in that wedding, that Jesus and his disciples attended, a problem occurred. And so here, the second one, let's talk about the problem. What was the problem? In the story, they ran out of wine. That's the problem. The host or the bridegroom ran out of wine. And remember, 
weddings at this time were long. It will take many days to one week. And probably the reason why it ran out of wine. Now, we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, what is the big deal of running out of wine? What is the big deal of that if you, if you run out of wine? Like today, if you run out of lechon, is it big deal? I don't know, right? Maybe for some, it's big deal. But for them at the time, why is it big deal? Second, whose responsibility is it to provide enough wine for the ceremony? Now, wine was a staple drink in the ancient world. It is normal for weddings to have plenty of wine. And it is not the costume of the day to run out of wine. In Jewish life, Wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. So wine for them was normal. It was, it was there and, and the expectation there should be plenty of wine. Now it's the greatest occasion at the time and the celebration is in full swing. People were having a good time in celebrating and to run out of wine was a social disaster. It was a social catastrophe. It was a big embarrassment at the time to run out of wine. And so whose responsibility is it to provide enough wine? It's the bridegroom's responsibility. He had one year to prepare, remember? Now, this is not how the bridegroom wants to start his life with his bride. And, but the catch is, the bridegroom did not know the wine ran out. I mean, of course, if you, are, if you are the one, you know, I mean, I think this is the reason why today they're wedding organizers, right? Because you don't want the, the, the newlywed to get worried because just because something, because of the problem, because it's a time for them to enjoy. It's a time for them to be joyful, to rejoice. And so you don't want them to tell them, hey, hey, we, we, we ran out of this or this. We have a problem. You, want, you don't want them to worry. So maybe here, the bridegroom did not know because of that. He's not aware of the problem. But what do you think this would have communicated to the families of everyone involved? The wine running out means the bridegroom is unprepared, immature, possibly poor, and should be ashamed. He is failing at his job as a groom. And if there's anything that the bridegroom had spent a year trying to prove is that he could take care of his bride. But if he could not supply enough wine for the celebration, it implies how can he take care of his bride for a lifetime. So it was a social disgrace. And some Bible scholars and historians say that the in-laws, the side of the bride, can sue. They can sue the bridegroom for this. So it was really a problem, right? It was really a problem. And then verse 3 tells us that when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. So Mary was so concerned, and of course, Mary knew the culture. 
He knew how disaster it, that was. So Mary went to Jesus. They ran out of wine. Now, I think Mary was part of the organizing team. Why else would she know that they ran out of wine, right? Will this tell us that Mary's profession was a wedding coordinator? We don't know. But it's unclear. I mean, it's unclear why Mary told this to Jesus. Why would Mary tell this problem to Jesus? Or for Mary to tell this to Jesus suggests that he wants Jesus to do something about this problem. Maybe he wants Jesus to gather his disciples to get wine wherever they are. Or, or I don't know if Mary knows that, that Jesus was, is about to perform a miracle after this. We don't know. Well, remember, it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to resupply wine. And in the story, in, this, in the chapter 2, evidently, the whole family got invited. Mary and his brothers were present in his wedding and in addition that Mary was concerned regarding this problem, we can surmise that the bridegroom could be Mary's relative. That the bridegroom could be a close relative or a close friend. And no wonder why Mary approached Jesus for help, or that's why she stepped in. But what is most interesting here is the response of Jesus to Mary. And this is what Jesus said to Mary, to his mother. Verse 4, woman, what does that have to do with us, you and me? Now, the New American uh, translation is more accurate or clearer than other translations. Why? Because in, in this particular verse, because there's two interpretations of this verse in verse 4. One is that, what business is that of ours? Remember, this is not our responsibility. This is not our problem. And the second interpretation of this verse is, What authority do you have over me? And, and the more accurate understanding of this is the second one. What authority do you have over me? Now, I made a research, and this expression has a way of distancing two parties. It's a separating statement. For example, in Mark 5, 7, the demoniac speaks to Jesus on behalf of the demons possessing him. What is there between me and you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you will not cause me anguish. Now, it is the same Greek expression by which the demoniac tries to distance himself from Jesus. He begs Jesus not to trouble him, not to make his demonic ex existence more miserable. And so here, Jesus completely distance, distances himself from Mary. He had assumed a higher position and that, that Mary has no role to play. And that Jesus is done with his mother's business and now He's doing his father's business. Jesus exalts his sonship to his heavenly father over his sonship to his mother, earthly mother. And she is no longer in a position to act as an authority in his life. And she's no longer in a position to tell him what to do, to advise, to make suggestions to him. 
she could no longer demand anything from him. As his mother, she might think that she has somewhat a parental authority over Jesus Christ. As her, but as her sovereign God, as her sovereign God, she has no authority over him at all. And this is what Jesus conveys here with his words. This is what Jesus wants to make clear. It is almost as though Mary has said, Jesus, they're out of wine. We need, really need to do something which Jesus respond, Mary, uh, woman, ma'am, what do we mean we? Remember, Jesus now begins his public ministry. As, in, as far as his ministry is concerned, Jesus has his own timetable. And he will perform miracles based on the Father's will. And so here we see Jesus is beginning to show Mary who he really is. And the years of compliance, the years of submission, the years of, you know, of just following Mary is over. He's, he's finished with his mother's business and now he's doing his father's business. I want us to remember that when Jesus was 12 years old, he gave her a preview of this moment when he went to the temple talking to the officials. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, this is what it tells us. And Jesus said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And this day, his father's business and his, uh, his father's business started and his mother's business ended. And from here on, he was saying, I don't do your business. I do my father's business. And this is elaborated more in the gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 17 to 19. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son cannot do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does. Thus, in like manner. And I want us also to notice that Jesus does not call her mother, but he calls her woman. Not mother, not Mary, but woman. Why? Now, it may sound harsh, right? I mean, just imagine this, like, I, that I will, or you will call your mom, woman, where are you going, right? It will sound harsh, right? But, at this, but during this time, some, some say it's kind of southern expression of ma'am. In, in ancient Palestine, this was a way of addressing godly woman. And it's the same word that Jesus used on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 26. When he said this, when he was there hanging on the cross for us, it was, and, he, and then he saw Mary, and he said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. The same word, woman. Woman, behold your son. And he handed her over to John the Beloved. And that signifies 
a change of relationship. Now, Jesus is defining a new kind of relationship that he has with Mary. Now, let me read to you what um, D.A. Carson said about this, a commentary from D.A. Carson. This is what he said. We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him, taught, taught his baby fingers, elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinate to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers view their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. And this is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dares to presume to approach him on an inside track, a lesson even Peter had to learn. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. And for this, we should honor her the more. And all the more, this emphasis is, or is reinforced or apparent because of the next statement. My R, this is what Jesus said, woman, so my love, what does this have to do with you and me? And then the following statement, Jesus said, my R has not yet come. Now, Jesus is living by a calendar. He follows a divine calendar. And the word R here refers to a definite time or an appointed time. In this context, it refers to the time of his public debut as the promised Messiah, which would culminate upon his death. And in the gospel, you will, you will read more of, of, the, uh, more of this in, in, in the gospel, more of this word R. And because Jesus is locked on to this R, every event, every issue, every circumstance is leading to that final R of Jesus Christ where, whereby He's going to die on the cross because that was His mission, that was His ultimate purpose. So Jesus then was careful in His activities and in His decision-making. And that's why He cannot let anyone, even his mother, influence his decision. And Jesus was saying, it is my heavenly father who determines that are and not you, woman. Well, here's a point of reflection. 
I know that we grow up in this idea that whenever we go to Jesus, we go through Mary. And whenever we want to go to Jesus, we first need to go to Mary. Do you know where that idea came from? That idea that you have, we must pass through Mary first in order to go to Jesus? That idea came from this verse, actually. It came from this story. But it is a misunderstanding of the response of Jesus to Mary. It is a misinterpretation of this verse. It is a misunderstanding of what Jesus and Mary were doing here. And because of what this verse, because what the verse really tells us here is different. Jesus here is telling his mother that he is under no obligation to follow her. He is not obligated to act at her bidding, for he only does what his father calls him to do. So to go through Mary to reach Jesus has no biblical basis at all. And what was the response of Mary to what Jesus said? And this is what Mary said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. In other words, Mary is not forcing it. Mary was like saying, I'm not asking him anymore what to do, or I'm not commanding Jesus. He has the say. Mary doesn't have the say. I mean, Jesus has the say. And Mary is not saying whatever I say, but whatever he says, do it. And Mary bows out, and she's leaving the matter to Jesus. And what transpired next? And so here, the provision. In verses 6 to 7, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. Well, eventually, Jesus went on to do something. Jesus was not apathetic, right? He was not saying, bahala na sila diha. Jesus was not apathetic. But if this is the case, you know, John Piper asked this question, why the stiff arm? Why the stiff arm? And Jesus could have said, Mother, I know, I'll take care of it immediately. And, and that's what he did. He took care of the problem. But that is not what he said to Mary. And that makes us ask why he spoke to her this way. I mean, if you're going to do what your mother has in mind anyway, why don't you just simply agree with her and do it, right? And why the off-putting words? Well, again, the answer is that Jesus felt a burden to make it clear, not just to Mary, not just to his family, but even to us today, that because of who he was, physical relationships on earth would not control him or oblige him. His mother and his physical family would have no special advantage of his to guide his ministry. And the real reason is that Jesus was absolutely bound to his father's will. And this is why, brothers and sisters, that our Jesus, that our Lord, is perfectly obedient to the Father. Jesus' highest allegiance was towards his Father. Jesus knew his place. 
He knew His calling. He knew His purpose. And no one could deter Him. No one could deter Him or His obedience to His Father. He was at His Father's disposal. And here's a point of reflection. How about you and how about us? How about you? Do you know your calling? Do you know your purpose? Do you know what God has called you to do? Do you know where your allegiance truly lies? Because our loyalty to God should exceed our loyalty to anyone else. And our priority as, a, as Christians is to know God's will, to follow God's will, and to submit or surrender to God's will. And we should not say yes to every opportunity unless it is the perfect will of the Father. Today, we can easily be distracted. We can easily lose focus. We can go through the motions of the world instead of going through the motions of God's will. We cannot, or rather, we can be swayed away from our purpose and calling. We can be drifted away easily from our purpose and calling in life. And but may we learn from the Lord that may we be in sway of God's will because we are bound to Him. He is our master. He is our Lord. And so Jesus went on to help solve the problem. It was not because Mary commanded Him, but Jesus acted it out willingly. It was a gracious act of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wedding is important for the couple. And, and again, this tells us once again that Jesus puts a stamp of approval on their wedding. Jesus is pro-wedding. He is the one who created wedding. Remember, he's the one who created and established wedding. But one important lesson that we can learn here, brothers and sisters, one important lesson is that indeed Jesus cares that what he did is that he went on to help this couple not just to prove that he is the Son of God, not just to prove that he is able to perform a miracle, but he went on and helped this couple because he cares for them. In the same way that he cares for you and me, in the same, in the same way that he wants to provide for your needs. And I don't think Jesus did this just to prove his deity, and, but as an act of compassion. He did not, I mean, actually, the reason why he made a miracle was not just because, or not really, so that the people can have more booze, so that people can enjoy more wine. But Jesus knows that the groom will be embarrassed, so that he went on to help and rescue the groom from the embarrassments. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, our God cares for us. He cares for you and me. Our God and Savior, Jesus, is not killjoy. He is for our joy. He cares for our needs. He knows what we need. And, and, and when Jesus provides for us, it is not just to prove to us that He is able, that He is God. But when He provides for us, and it is because He loves you, and it is because that He cares for us deeply as His people. And I don't know what you need right now, but remember, 
that Jesus cares and is willing to provide in accordance to his Father's will. And we just need to submit to his timetable. And just like Mary, leaving the matter to Jesus. And so how did Jesus help this groom or this couple? How did he help them? And here's how. Jesus asked the servants to fill the water pots upon the brim. Now, these water pots were stone jars. These were big jars. These were not just small jars, but these were stone jars, stone containers, which, would, which could hold 20 to, or to 30 gallons each. And there were six of them. And by the way, these were used for purification. This was not for drinking. And the Jews always purify everything. They wash their hands. They wash their utensils. They wash their plates. They wash their drinking pots. And they wash everything. They would go through ceremonial washings before every meal. And there's lots of meals in a day. And so there was plenty of water there for everybody to wash ceremonially. So Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. And just imagine the amount of water being filled in these containers. And so they filled them to the brim. Now, which is, this is what Jesus wanted. That they must be filled up to the brim. And this description should refute what liberals would say that Jesus did not really change wine to, uh, water to wine. You know what? This is what liberals would say. He added wine in the containers. But again, what did Jesus say? Fill them up to the brim. And some liberals would also say that what Jesus did is just he added food coloring. But again, food, you cannot make food coloring taste like wine, right? So in other words, this was really a miracle. This was really a miracle. What happened here was really a miracle. There's no deception here. And so Jesus said to the servants, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. The head waiter or the master of ceremony was the one in charge in making sure that there would, in, there would be enough food and wine for the guest. And so the servants took, it, took the wine to him. And the fact that the servants brought it to the head waiter proved that a miracle happened, that a miracle took place, that lo and behold, there was a miracle. And let's see here the reality of the miracle in verses 9 to 10. The miracle was validated because we read that when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, usually in a party like this, they offered first the good wine. The trick is to reserve the poorer wine, the inferior wine for last, so that when everybody had enough of the wine, they can now serve next the poor wine or they can now serve the inferior wine because people won't mind anymore. Remember, this was a weeks-long celebration. The fact that even up probably the last day, the availability of the good wine is surprising. And this is, the, this is why the head waiter, the master of ceremony, called the bridegroom. He called the bridegroom's attention and he made a compliment. And he tells the bridegroom that this wedding feast 
is way beyond any he's ever experienced before. This is not normal. Nobody does this. Nobody keeps the quality of wine until the end. And so he was astonished at the high quality of this new batch of wine. And, and, we, and, and of course, surely it was the sweetest, it was the freshest wine, it was the best wine available at the time. It was the freshest wine ever tasted. And by the way, just a side note, this story does not excuse us to be drunk with wine. Because I believe that the wine here is unfermented. It did not go through the process of fermentation. Now, the head waiter and the bridegroom did not know where the wine came from, right? They did not know where the wine came from. And um, they were, the bridegroom was surprised. And he, they did not know what really happened behind the scene. But for that to happen gives only one explanation. A miracle took place. Now, there's a question that needs to be answered. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? Of course, only one answer to that. Jesus has to be God. Right? Jesus has to be God, brothers and sisters. Jesus is God. And so this is what John is trying to convey here. Remember, he was there. He, he witnessed this. That's why in, in, in first chapter, he said that nothing was made without him. Everything was made through him because he is the creator. And that John saw this miracle. I mean, can any one of you here change Water into wine? Can any one of you here do that? Raise your hand if you can do that. Okay, so we will start a business. Can any one of you do that? In a split second, can you turn water into wine? Nobody can do that, right? And so, in other words, this is really a miracle. And, he, and, and you know what? I remember what, by the way, Rabbi Zacharias said, you know, talking about this passage. And this is what Rabbi Zacharias said, that when the creation looks at its creator, it blushes. Namula. But here is a lesson that I want to share to you this morning. The miracle was not a necessity, but a luxury. We see that Jesus turned 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine, and it was the best wine at the time. So it was not just out of necessity. It was a luxury what Jesus did, brothers and sisters. And Jesus not only produced something beautiful, but also something bountiful. And, and, and he did this willingly as an act of his grace. Jesus performed the miracle of changing water into wine to show his lavish grace. And this is what John chapter 1 verses 14 and 16 tells us. We read that Apostle John's testimony and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received 
grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, brothers and sisters, being piled up on us. Because Jesus always goes an extra mile. Amen? Jesus always goes an extra mile for us. That's how lavish our Savior is. Wa siya nagtinihik. Diba? Wa siya nagtinihik. It was plenty for everyone. I remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. There were even more. I mean, there were a lot of leftovers at that time. Because Jesus always provides something more than what we deserve. Because that is who He is. He is a generous King. He is gracious to you and me. And His grace is so lavish. But let me ask you this question. Who took the credit of the availability of, the availability of good wine? Who took the credit? Who took the compliment? Who? It was the bridegroom who took the compliment. It was the bridegroom who took the credit. And it is, it is, is this not the message of the gospel? That we take the credit of the work of another. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you and me. What have we done? Nothing but sin and sin and sin every day. Jesus did the work of salvation. He was the one who suffered and died in behalf of us. And what do we get from Jesus' work in exchange for our sin? His grace, a new life. I mean, just as the bridegroom in the story was helpless and hopeless without him knowing it, and if Jesus did not come to rescue, he would have been embarrassed. He would have been condemned by the family members of the bride. In the same way, brothers and sisters, that we too were spiritually hopeless and helpless. And that Jesus, but rather Jesus voluntarily and willingly came to rescue us and took away the shame. And so that together we, with Him we can celebrate and we can rejoice. Do you know that the true host of this wedding is Jesus Christ? He went on as an invited guest, but later became the host because he is now the one serving the people. In the same way, when we, when we became a Christian, Jesus is now the host of our lives. He is now the host of our life, brothers and sisters, that He's the host every day. And that if we think that we are the ones serving Jesus Christ, no, the truth is He is the one serving us every day. And that's who He is. He is a lavish host. And so now we go to the purpose. What is the purpose of this? The last two verses read, the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother 
he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, most of the people never knew a miracle took place. It was probably only the mother, the servants, and the disciples knew about what happened. And John tells us that because of these miracles they witnessed, the disciples believe in him. Now, I do not believe that, the, that Jesus compromised his time, his hour, because only few people knew about it, particularly his disciples. And I also think that this is the reason why Jesus and his family right away went on to Capernaum after that event so that if the, ever the rumors spread out of what happened, he's no longer there in Cana. Because again, his hour, his time has not yet come. Now in verse 11, Apostle John talks about the beginning or the first of his signs. Now, what is this sign? What is the purpose of this sign? Now, miracles, signs, signs or miracles that we, that we read in this, in this verse is the plural of Simeon. A sign or a distinguishing mark whereby something is known, sign, token, indication. Here, an event that is an indication or confirmation of intervention by transcendent powers, miracle, portent. For John, these signs point to who Jesus actually is. According to verse 11, the signs has two functions. It reveals His glory and it inspires faith. It reveals His glory as the Son of God and also it inspires faith. The story presents the person and the power of Jesus Christ. And this goes on with John's purpose of writing this gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you might have eternal life. So what does a sign do? A sign points to the point. That's what a sign does. If all we do is get you the story and walk away saying, wow, what a great miracle it was that Jesus performed, and that's it, then we miss the point. The miracles of Jesus are never actually the point, but they point to the point. And the point is, Jesus is God. And that is the point of the miracles. And this is what the sign does. And if we believe this, if we believe Jesus is God, then we are never wrong in believing Him as our Lord and Savior. And as a result of these miracles, the disciples believed in Jesus. While the people were enjoying the wine, the disciples were enjoying the glory of Jesus Christ. The, the disciples were amazed. They were astounded. They, were, they said, wow, this is really the Messiah. That this is really the Son of God. That's why the text tells us that they believe in Him. And they were amazed as they saw the glory of Christ. Now, I'd like to draw an application here. First, because Jesus is God, Jesus can turn a problem into an opportunity. Amen? He can turn a problem into an opportunity. So lay down, brothers and sisters, 
your burdens. Lay down your problems to Him, for He cares for you and that He serves you every day. Secondly, because He is God, then we must fully submit or surrender our lives to Him. We owe Jesus as our highest allegiance. Would it be wonderful? I mean, the, the, the turning of miracle, wine, uh, water into wine was a great miracle, right? And wouldn't it be so wonderful if, if we were there as witnesses of this miracle, right? We would, if we were there, we would be amazed as well. But let me tell you here right now, brothers and sisters, that you and I today experience a far greater miracle. That you and I are witnesses. And do you know what's that? The turning of a sinner into a saint. The turning of a rebel into a son and a daughter of God. The turning of a sm chain smoker into a smoke-free person. The turning of an, adult, an, of an ad adulterer into a faithful husband and, or wife. The turning of an addict to drugs to an addicted to Jesus Christ. Turning of a dishonest businessman to an honest businessman. And how is that possible? Because the God whom we give our lives to is not just human, but He is God. That Jesus Christ is able. And He said in His Word, in Philippians 1.6, that He's able to finish what He had started. That He's able to change us. He's able to transform us. And so can God make a miracle out of your life? Yes, but we must submit to Him. We must surrender our lives to Him. And we also need to be born again. And that's why in the following chapter, it talks about new birth, right? It talks about new birth because we need the new birth. We need to be born again. And third, because Jesus is God, will you come and adore Him? Will you worship Him? Will you praise Him? And lastly, the disciples of Jesus had a crucial role, which they are to be His witnesses. And Apostle John labored to write this letter just to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And today, brothers and sisters, we are God's witnesses. And that we are to witness, we are the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And let's share the gospel as we share. We are to present Jesus Christ completely. Not just the son of man, not just someone who came here on earth more than 2,000 years ago. But he is God. And we need to present Jesus completely because, we, we, because people need to submit to his authority. And this December, we have that opportunity to share Jesus Christ to people as God and man. And in conclusion, in conclusion, the miracle of turning water into wine revealed who Jesus is. It revealed His glory as Savior and God, and it also reveals His future glory 
as king and the perfect bridegroom. He is the perfect bridegroom. And why? Because the story reminds us of another wedding that we'll take in the future. Jesus started his public ministry in a wedding, but this will culminate to a future wedding. The wedding of the church and the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And there will be a heavenly wedding that will take place in the future, and you and I will be present in this wedding. And during this time, there will be a great feast, the greatest of all. And it will not just be one week, it will be forever. And listen to the words in Revelations 19, 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We, the church, is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the perfect bridegroom. And we have a bridegroom who is not only able to provide for us, but also able to secure our salvation. And when the time comes, brothers and sisters, it will be a time of abundance. It will be a time of plenty. It will be a great time of peace. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ is a time of peace and prosperity. And we are looking forward for that time. Amen? Amen. Can we all stand as we conclude this and as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, and praise you for what you have done for us, Lord, greatly. More than we deserve, more than we could imagine. We thank you, Lord, for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who, cond- who condescended, who humbled himself. Not just that he was born here on earth more than 2,000 years ago, but lived the life that we could not live and carried the cross in behalf of us. And there, Lord, we see your love. We see your, your care for us. We see, Lord, how lavish is your grace for us, O oh God. And Lord, we thank you that you are able to transform us, to change us, and able to complete our salvation. And you will never lack, and we will never be found lacking. And Lord, we thank you that nothing is impossible with you, O Lord, because you are not just man, but you are God. And so, Lord, we thank you. And Lord, may this cause us to submit and surrender completely our lives to you. For, Lord, you are faithful. You are gracious to us every day as our host, as our master. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this reminder, O God, of who you are and for what you have done for us and that nothing indeed is impossible with you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you, Lord. Even use our lives to point people to you. Use our lives as a witnesses of this great miracle and that they too could experience this hope and other people can experience this change that only Jesus can bring, the forgiveness of sins that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We commit, I commit now your people, I commit, Lord, to you, even the tithes and offerings offered to you, Lord, and may use this, O oh God, for your greater glory. Whatever has been achieved today will be achieved tomorrow in the days to come. To you alone be the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.